Hello there and welcome to a bonus episode this week of World and Union, Balls.ie's weekly rugby show, although more than weekly this time, uh, where we get an outside perspective on Irish rugby and the game itself. The reason we've got an extra episode this week is because myself and Morris have been speaking to Ian Coslow, who's the Wasps assistant coach. Um, he is a former Munster uh, coach. He was a, he was an assistant um, under Anthony Foley, who later went on to uh, move to England, move to Nottingham, and now is with Wasps. Um, an absolutely fascinating guy who we spoke to about his own career, but also about coaching in general and about like what he will take from the Six Nations, what defensive systems are, are popping up in the Six Nations, and everything there within. Um, so I hope you enjoy our chat with Ian Costello. Right, so I'm delighted to say that we're joined by um, Ian Costello on the line, uh, WASP assistant coach. Ian, um, lots to talk to you about, but I just wanted to start by kind of um, getting a sense of what uh, what it's like for a premiership coaching team at this time of year. We obviously know um, in this part of the world what the Irish provinces kind of do and, and how they manage. Um, but I know you guys have a game coming up this weekend um, without your England players. What exactly is it like um, at, at this time of year during the Six Nations? Yeah, I think that's what is my first time experiencing it. Um, but I think it's one that English clubs are used to. Um, you know, this, this season has broken up off into various blocks, and one of the blocks that a lot of teams talk about is how many points you can get um, during that Six Nations period. I think traditionally it was, it was a period that was done pretty well in, um, and it's probably one that we really need to do well in at the moment. Obviously, things haven't um, we haven't had the best season to date, and we've four important games now over the next four weeks. So. It was nice to enjoy the Six Nations the first two weeks, definitely. But uh, yeah, focus very much switches back onto the Premiership. Yeah, and like on that, actually, on the Six Nations idea, I think one of the themes of the tournament so far has been the idea of like really well coached defensive setups. Like I, I assume you uh, you were pretty impressed when you saw the England setup against Ireland. Yeah, I think there's um, there's been a little bit of a shift, really, hasn't there? I think the, you know I think intercepts are one that have been a source of possession for a lot of sides. Um, you know, I think England set the tone realistically against Ireland last weekend. And, uh, you know, a, a pretty remarkable defensive performance, to be fair. Um, I think when we looked at the line speed that they had, um, I suppose the ferocity of the collisions, how many times they had two in the tackle. And, you know, just, uh, I don't think I've seen such a, a highly motivated team mm-hmm. like that for a long time. And, and they really they really expressed that through their defence. And I think that was, yeah, that's been kind of the main feature of the first two weeks. And then when you, when you tie that in with the short kicking game, you know, I think traditionally you'd say, okay, teams go to the air. And that has been impressive. But I think they've taken the short kicking game and the attacking kicking game to, to a whole new level. Um, and I think, you know, traditionally you probably look at New Zealand and you'd be surprised by how many times they actually kick the ball um, in international. You know, it tends to be close to, to 30. Um, but the majority of those would have been attacking kicks. And, okay. and obviously we would have seen this weekend with England against France, uh, you almost thought it was, thought it was a misprint. Uh, they kicked the ball <laughs> in the high 40s. Um, and the return they're getting from that at the moment is is, is pretty impressive. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, two games they've done is now with the break in between. It'll be interesting to see how, to, how teams adapt to that tactic. Yeah, it's definitely definitely something innovative. I mean, I'm wondering as a coach when you watch these games, um, you've obviously you guys obviously have your own ideas and your own plans um, with what you're doing at club level. But do, like, would you like? And this goes to, to any level, I guess. But when you watch as a spectator, are you always kind of on duty, going, 
right, how could I adapt that to the players I have? Or, you know, would that work in our system? How would that? How would something like that tweak for for our game? Yeah, I think realistically, realistically, you are. You know, um, you know, there are times you just watch a match as a spectator and you enjoy it, especially if you've. If it's if it's maybe a team you have an emotional attachment to, but the majority of rugby, yeah, you do watch from that sense. And um, where we're lucky is, you know, you have a uh, an analysis team that literally you drop a text message to and say, look, will you will you cut this passage of play or will you download that game for me or can you take out all the tackles in a certain game and gives you an opportunity to watch them back in the cold light of day. So, yeah, I think with the Six Nations, um, you know, ever since. Ever since as a kid, I'm sure you boys are no different. As you, you get excited on Six Nations weekends, and I think you want to watch them um, for what they are. But mm. yeah, um, essentially throughout the week, um, we'll have those on our laptop and, and and break them down. And like even today, to be honest with you, I used a couple of clips from the England Ireland game, and, and they'd form a basis of maybe tying in with the mindset for for the game that we're playing this weekend. It just it's so current and it's so relevant and so many players are engaged and watching it. Mm. You know, it's certainly a useful coaching tool at the moment to pull out some best practice from those games and, and obviously super rugby starting this weekend as well. And so on that point actually, like how as a coach, how difficult is it to teach players to be as disciplined as England currently are? Like that that from our own edu- educated perspective we kind of see great line speed and kind of associate that with just kind of attitude. But is there more to it? Like, is there intricacies within this defensive setup that we might miss? Um, I think when you take someone like England, I was um, fortunate enough to spend uh, a day observing them training this season. And and I think it's, one is, it, it's definitely personnel driven. Um, right. So, you know, you have you know, the likes of Owen Farley, those guys who, who pretty much has been part of their DNA for years now with Saracens and and I'm not, and, and you know a significant amount of those players, but collectively, um, what was really evident is you know the coaches would have uh, a very clear philosophy and strategy, but you know the quality of player and the temperament of the player and the characteristics of those players, you know, it was very clear that they were driving the standards throughout the session. And you know, uh, you, you look at guys like you know Mark Wilson, I think for England who was topped out in the tackle charts and Mac was in a poll I think he had 27 tackles against England like you know that's years of of uh, that mindset at Saracens uh, and I think that's filtering throughout the team and obviously John Mitchell's done a pretty good job to and Eddie Jones to bring that out in the team um, so uh, look, from experience I find that you have to be you pretty much have to be obsessed about line speed you have to be talking about it thinking about it training for it, you know, your conditioning has to reflect how you want to, to defend, you know, your attitude and mindset as a whole group has to be ingrained with uh, where you are defensively um, and I think that's where, you know I think England have probably stood apart the last two weeks um, and to be fair, that's where, you know, I think Ireland have probably set the bar and again we're very strong in that area uh, against Scotland yeah. yeah, it's very much a, a mindset and a mood and an attitude right across the whole team, driven from top to bottom, I think, within any organisation. Can I ask you about, like, it, it kind of follows on from that, but how quickly things change as a 
for a defensive team. So, you know, two, three years ago, Ireland initiated, well, I, I, I think we initiated the sort of the choke tackle defence, and yeah. that was obviously a massive weapon in our arsenal. Now it's like, I don't know whether it's referees or the way it's it, the way it's being attacked, but you, I don't think there's been a choke tackle, a successful choke tackle in the Six Nations so far. Whereas, like, you know, in 2018, um, Ireland had basically perfected the kind of, the you know, the, the, second, the third man, Turnover, you know, basically almost set yeah, moving yeah. across the field yeah. and setting up that kind of Peter O'Matney or Rory Best to kind of go there and get the steal, and that just doesn't seem to be happening in this tournament as much again. And things change so quickly in the way games are refereed or the way attacks kind of counteract defensive systems. From your point of view, watching that or you know coaching yourself. Are you guys trying to kind of get ahead? Obviously, you are trying to get ahead of the curve, but like, do you have to see signs that things aren't going to work anymore, or is it always this is only this is everything has such a short lifespan? I always need to be thinking about the next the next uh, innovation. Uh, yeah, I, I just I suppose teams attack our defense are you know they work each other out pretty quickly, and and even this gap in the Six Nations, as I said, two week gap, um. You know, will teams have had to, like, will Wales have had two weeks to prepare um, adequately to, you know, to contract the England kicking game, for example? You know, will England be prepared for, you know, Wales who, who put more into tackle contests, put more into breakdown defensively, probably than any other team? Um, uh, you know, different teams have different policies, and I'd be very interested to see now on the second block of the Six Nations how that adaption takes takes mm. place. And I think that's one of the most exciting things about coaching is is you know, being very firm and having conviction in what you do in your own philosophy, but then being open enough to to tweak things and add one percent that are that are out there. You know, um, you know, I think you know Joe Schmidt referred to taking plays off the mid or ten, but every one of those would have his personal stamp on them and brought to a new level. And I think you know you steal unashamedly uh, and then you turn it into into your own. Um, and I think you know probably going back to your original point, the choke tackle. You know, it was effective for a period of time. And I think what will always be effective, um, or, or for the majority of the time anyway, is, is getting two people into a tackle situation. So even if it doesn't evolve into a joke, you know, I think the most successful teams defensively now are ones that have two guys uh, initiating any contact, whether it's one low, one high, or whether it's two maybe wrapping up the ball and from the point of contact, you know, there's valuable seconds added to the time that the ball can be played. And you know, the difference between a three-second rock and a five-second rock is just night and day at that level. And I think that's where, you know, England were incredibly successful against Ireland because Ireland's game is so based on speed of ball. It's like if you're talking about an Irish DNA, you'd say ball carry and breakdown under Joe Schmidt are probably, you know, not probably, they're definitely the best in the world. And I think when you you can attack that with your defence the way England did, and and when when you break that game up and you cut it up, which which we look very closely at it as a coaching group, the amount of times you get two guys into the tackle is very very impressive. You know they talked about forty eight dominant tackles, um, which is a staggering statistic. Um, you know when you compare that with what you would have considered good, you know a quarter of their tackles are dominant, and again the majority of those were where there was two shoulders in the tackle and it's four legs versus two. And it's not only about um, it's not only about uh, putting somebody on the deck, it's the second person keeping them off the ground and making that a six, seven, eight second rock. Uh, and from that, you know, when you saw 
Ireland pretty much ran into brick walls all day. And I think that's how the game, you know, maybe evolved that even though you don't see choke tackles, you still see a form of of two man tackles creating uh I suppose very slow rock balls that that pretty much takes away momentum from from any attack. No matter how good your attack is, if you don't have quick balls, it's very, very difficult to uh to function. And that's probably where uh, defensively being at, uh, on top over the last couple of weeks in the Six Nations. In that, to go back to a, a phrase you used there about dominant tackles, I think that's um, something that we saw after the Ireland-England game as well you, in relation to Macavinopolo especially. But it's kind of a phrase that we don't really understand, I think, or don't know what it means. It was even used as a stat in that game. Like From your own definition, what exactly would that refer to? I think from, from my... There's two ways of looking at it, I suppose, really, is that we look at tackle versus gain, and I just from from something um, that we do at WASP is that we look at tackle versus gain line, and you look at a dominant percentage. Um, and if you're in the double figures percentage wise dominant uh, in terms of dominant tackles, you, you know you've had a reasonable day. If you can be up around 15 plus, you, you've probably had um, a very strong defensive performance. And putting that in context, uh, uh, just over a quarter of England tackles were, were dominant that day, and I think by dominant. In that sense, you know, you're talking about the obvious one is uh, driving somebody back. You know, where from the initial point of contact, you know, you win that collision. Um, and, and probably the other side, the other, the other um, less obvious, but certainly as effective, would be dominant tackle that might be a little bit more side on, where you, you know you disrupt somebody's running line and, and it slows up the presentation of the ball, and it's much more difficult for support players to get in. Um, and most of it would be initiated obviously by you know a combination of collision and, and then the leg drive after the tackle and I think that's something that has really been impressive in the first two weeks um, or the first two rounds of games anyway um, the, the other one probably to look at is you know tackle versus gain line and, and sometimes you're prepared to sacrifice a little bit of uh, of dominance in the tackle for winning that race for the gain line um, and I think it's just important to look at things like, you know, England, I think, if, if I remember correctly, missed uh, 33 tackles versus Ireland's nine in the first game. And I remember reading that Owen Farrell missed 11 tackles against New Zealand. But, you know, there's a big difference between a missed tackle and a critical missed tackle and, you know, one that forces somebody back in to, to cover or one where a, a guy is, is, you know, someone hunting down immediately. Um, can often be really, really effective if they're over the game line. So again, that just depends on the strategy of the team or the philosophy of the team. Um, and it's something where England are quite happy to go off the line. And even if the initial tackler isn't dominant, you know, you'll hunt them down and they'll peeling up on the inside with those dominant tackles. And the beauty of those is they're, they're a long way across the game line. Um, so yeah, I think different teams measure dominance differently, but it's certainly relative to the collision and, uh, and where the tackle takes place. On that the different teams idea, um, like for those who don't know, you've had a pretty interesting career yourself, like starting out in the IL with Bose and then working with Munster with Anningham. But I also know that you visited South Africa, um, New Zealand last summer. Like I'm wondering, this idea yeah. of a of a defensive philosophy or whatever philosophy Joe Schmidt has is that rigid, or are you manipulating that as you travel and as you experience all these different clubs? Um, no, no, that's that's a that's a really good question, and and I think the way I kind of answer that at the start is I, I kind of say first and foremost you know I'm a coach okay. um, 
and I'm fortunate enough to have coached um, a lot of different aspects of the game. So, you know, I know that people who are absolute specialists in certain areas. Um, you know, I think at UL Bowls, I went from coaching the back line to, to being the head coach and predominantly coaching attack. And then the role at Munster was skills and has evolved into different things like, you know, exits and set piece defence and, and work with the A side. Um, and then under Axel, it evolved into defence. Uh, and combined with, you know, with kicking and, and the different parts that came with that. So, uh, you know, before I even left Ireland, I was lucky enough to have worked with a lot of different coaches, been influenced by a lot of really good coaches. You know, Tony McGann was my, you know, gave me the first opportunity at Munster. You know, then there was Rob Penny and then there was Axel. And even within those times, I was lucky enough to travel. And, you know, Andy Farrell came in and, and was with us for a number of months. And, you know, all these people would have influenced you along the way as a coach. And by that I mean, you know, what your beliefs are about the game, how you think, you know, teams should prepare, uh, how you think you should train, what training sessions should look like in terms of, you know, intensity, format, um, how you teach players, how you create those environments for players to learn in, and, you know, how you get your points across, all the kind of stuff in terms of, like, you know, learning styles and getting to know players and building relationships, I think. All that stuff is essential, um, regardless of what level you coach at. And the more time you spend coaching, the more important you realize, um, you know, your identity as a coach and your coaching style and who you're coaching is really important. So uh, I suppose what I'm, what I'm saying basically is all that is established over a period of time. But then, yeah, you travel, you know, to somewhere like we spend, you know, three or four days in the Highlanders and, you know, you meet coaches there, you see different ways of doing things and you say, yeah, I like that. That works perfectly for the group I'm with now or that's one I'll park and I'll keep for the future. Um, same with the Hurricanes where, you know, John Plumtree, he runs, runs a defense there that he calls the Raiders defense, an incredibly aggressive defense. And, you know, from them I took how excited they are both sides of the ball and how they had an environment that, you know, there was no real distinction between attack and defense. Everything was attacking. One was attacking with the ball, one was attacking without the ball. So I think along the way, you're influenced by coaches, you're influenced by by um, um, environments and, and, and different places and different cultures that you go to. But essentially 80% of who you are and what you're about as a coach stays the same. It, it, it's probably what I'm, it's what I'm getting at. And yeah. what I love about coaching is it is just a constant journey. You're constantly evolving. And you know, even today, somebody brought in and put two books on my desk and I know from each of those you'll take another couple of things um, and that, that's you know that's the beauty of it and that's why that's why it's, um, it's such an exciting uh, and frustrating um, science slash art at the best of times I'd say the frustrating part is definitely uh, high on that list as well it's funny you actually listen to Ian there like do you study other sports or coaching as, as a whole because even a lot of what you're saying there, it's, it's, it's just reminding me so much of like things I'd hear from 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 reading books about the NFL and, and, and the way they coach, and obviously it's so many other sports as well. Yeah, I think it'd be, and not just sports, from business, you know. Sure. Um, and I think like sports coaching and business coaching uh, overlap a lot now at the moment. And, you know, you could take a book like Good to Grace that would be based on businesses, but there's three or four or five even very valuable learnings from that. Um, NFL, you know, uh, reading about Bill Walsh, Bill Belichick, or, or, or Lombardi, or, you know, just in terms of leadership and management, and and 
there's just so many valuable learnings from them. And, you know, John Wooden, I suppose, is, is, is one of people's go-to in terms of one of the most successful basketball coaches of all time. And, and, and I listen to him um, because I commute a lot now. I've tried to listen to it a little bit more. I use my time a bit more constructively. And, you know, Steve Kerr from the Golden mm. State Warriors, um, had a really interesting podcast out lately. And again, you take one or two things out of that and, you know, you might be able to apply them on a daily basis. Um, or, or, or even, you know, season to season, and uh, I just think that's again the beauty of it. You're you're influenced by there's so many um, successful coaches, but that are so different, um, and you know it's never clear that there's a right or wrong. And I think it's up to you from your own experiences that you've gathered uh, throughout your career to decide what's best suited for you. Um, and what's best suited to the players and the environment you're in at a particular time. And I think what's really important, though, is you have your own identity. I think it's really important yeah. that you're you're honest and you like you know the phrase that don't try to be somebody else. Like everyone else is taken. So you know, I think that's I think really really important. That your core philosophy, that eighty percent, doesn't change. Yeah. Um, regardless of who you're influenced by. Yeah. Now the whole thing it's absolutely fascinating. Just before I let you go, um I was talking to a coach recently who was talking about um you know the Irish players have uh, you know in his in in his opinion seem to have a very kind of like engaged and very smart and kind of like all-round knowledge of rugby um that they can take to the game whereas like the, the another country might be you know more kind of like you know physical physical and in the gym more but not too worried about the game in general and i just found the whole thing interesting you obviously spent a lot of time in ireland coaching munster went over i think um a couple of years ago um to nottingham first and now to wasps um obviously you're not gonna like not in a good or a bad way but would you notice a a difference between like a, a, a typical irish professional rugby player and a typical english professional rugby player in mindset or anything else that that would stand out to you um, I think it's probably fair to say that I think um, players are changing in general um, and I think it's fair to say that even you know I, I'm fortunate now to be I think this is my 8th season professionally and I've been lucky enough to be full time in rugby for the last 12 years um, and I've noticed a big difference in the players that you would have coached 7 or 8 years ago versus the players that, that, that you might coach now in that um, how you engage them, you know, how you keep their attention, how you, you know, keep that fire burning in terms of being passionate about the game, being students of the game. And I think regardless of Ireland or England at the moment, it, it's quite surprising to see, um, you know, I spoke about the excitement. Like I can remember watching the Six Nations with, with my dad, you know, and being really excited, you know, for that period when it came along and, you know, that hasn't gone away. But I think with some players, they feel now it's their job and, and they, they take a break from rugby. So, you know, it's, it's about keeping them, it's about making sure that they're, you know, passionate about all the opportunities there are to learn about the game and, and, and study the game. And I don't mean take away the enjoyment from it, obviously not. And you don't want to get too bogged down in the detail. But, you know, if it's what you do for a living, there's so many opportunities in your week to improve on and off the pitch. And it's just trying to spark that and have an environment where that kind of stuff is encouraged. Um, and I've been in environments where it is encouraged and, you know, you can see it right throughout the whole 
the whole squad and the whole environment. And I've been in places where where it isn't, and you know the kind of the tall poppy syndrome where sometimes guys don't want to stick their head above mm. um, for fear of um, you know being criticised a little bit. Um, so there's definitely a significant shift in the mindset of you know players in their early twenties compared to seven or eight years ago. Um, I think in terms of the Ireland England conversation, I think what what's quite unique about Ireland is you know you, you grow up you grow up wanting to play for a particular club. Um, so like you grow up in Munster wanting to play for Munster. Um, and for people like me who, who knew they weren't good enough to play for Munster wanted to coach Munster. You know, it was it was your community, it was your it was your local team. As big as they were, it was still your local team. Um, so that sense of identity and that sense of, you know, a, a culture and an environment is really strong. It just passes from from player to player, you know, throughout the chain. Um, whereas in other countries, I think people grow up wanting to be a professional player, not necessarily for that particular team. And, and, and that's just more how it evolves. So I just think that um, that's where we're very, very lucky in Ireland. Um, and that identity of having those provinces and, you know, it being so community driven. But I think that the biggest thing I think that I'm noticing is, and this is a, a massive skill of coaching, is that you know, it's by far, it's it's one that you're just constantly working on. And I think you never really, you never even get close to perfecting is what's the best way for the players you work with to learn? What's the best way to transfer information? What's the best way to get that transfer onto the pitch? Um, I think that's the ongoing challenge because it's different for different individuals. It's different for different mini groups. It's different for different groups and certainly different between countries. Um, so look, a pretty long-winded answer, but I think it's, it's it's just constantly evolving, constantly changing. Oh, it's fascinating. Finally, Ian, I suppose uh, before we let you go, um, just on wasps, and it was probably a frustrating enough year in Europe, I'd imagine. But your own aspirations in in the Premiership for the rest of the year and your kind of your goal for the year out, like would you be? I presume European qualification is a must now. Would you be looking beyond that now, or like I know you play in Gloucester this week as well. Yeah, we've we, we've um, we've got Bristol on Friday night. Um, and it's the first of four games in a row, I suppose, and it's a pretty strange one because it's what we've talked about. And, and look, we've we've had a poor season, a very disappointing season. There's there's no hiding from it, especially in cup competitions. Um, you know, we got off to a really good start in the season, and you know, from the very very start, the minimum standard was finishing top four. Um, but there's been a number of external factors, uh, a number of obstacles that that. You know, we've had to overcome and we haven't handled some of those uh, well enough. Um, but, but essentially now we've drawn a line under every competition except the Premiership. And and what we're trying to do, I suppose, is focus on the 10 games that we have, uh, if not 12, hopefully, between now and the end of the season. So trying to literally draw a line under a very poor European campaign, one that we're very disappointed with. Um, we won't have our internationals for the next four weeks, so we're very clear on, on what we have in terms of our squad and and it's a case of getting the most points we possibly can over the next four weeks. And, and ironically, um, as bad as it's been, and it has, and nobody's, nobody's hiding from that, is you know, we win on Friday night, there's a good chance that we're in the top four. Mm. Um, and you know, that's the message we're trying to be. Yes, confidence isn't where it should have been. A performance, a, a confidence isn't where we'd like it to be, I should say. A performance that hasn't been where it should have been. But as I said to you, what we're just trying to do now is we've got one focus. It's on the Premiership. Um, we had no match last weekend, so we had really good prep. 
last week and, and so far today leading into the Bristol game. So, uh, yeah, you've a highly motivated group, I suppose, trying to turn our season around. And the beauty is now we have one focus on the Premiership. And if that's good enough to be top four, brilliant. Um, yeah, it's absolutely essential that we're, you know, we're in Europe and competing in the Champions Cup next year. Well, Ian, best of luck with it. We'll all be watching out for it. And uh, thanks so much for a really, really enjoyable and um, informative and educational conversation. Um, we really enjoyed it. And uh, thanks so much for your time. Thanks, lads. Thanks, William. Good to talk to you. Um, I really enjoyed that. Uh, Ian Costello is a name that I have to say, like, aware of, but, you know, you've been talking, you've been setting up this interview for a while and um, just possibly the most interesting guest we've had on the show. And I just... I'd love to just talk to him more about all kinds of things to do with rugby. Yeah, and I guess like from even from the people who listen to our own podcast, like the idea of those intricacies that none of us really understand fully, like just like a simple enough thing as what is the definition of a in these intense tackles that we're dominant, dominant tackle, tackles, yeah, you know, yeah. like the the kind of simple stuff like that. I think it's um it's a remarkable insight into the level of what goes into coaching. Like it's fascinating to hear somebody say when they realised they were never going to be good enough to play for Munster, like your next goal is immediately coaching at Munster, which he did and did quite successfully as well. Like the, what the sheer demands of, and you know, like range of interest that it demands, like in terms of business, in terms of fellow sports and things like that. Yeah. It's kind of, a, it's kind of striking, I guess. It's funny. I've been reading, um, just randomly like a couple of books in a row that were kind of a lot about coaching and David Fitzgerald's book that's just out this year which yeah. is specifically about his managerial career which I didn't even know when I got it you know I was waiting for stories about the, the Clare All-Irelands in the 90s and uh, currently reading a book um, the Eamon Dunphy biography of Matt Busby and what's fascinating to like sometimes I used to question what is it about a GA manager for example who isn't supposed to be getting paid that makes them want the job so much or makes it such a personal thing when a team moves on and it's like what are you really like I understand you're trying to hold on to the game but I think what I've realized over the last couple of months and definitely speaking to Ian there is how much of an addiction coaching and managing is almost more so than being a player and it's watching the the, the Patriots over the last couple of months and you're trying to think of yourself like why? What? What keeps Bill Belichick going back? Because this, he's a three six five, you know, twenty four seven kind of guy. He's already coaching. He's already getting together um, his coaching plans for next year, like the day after the Super Bowl. I heard someone say he'll have a he'll have a nice uh, extra slice of toast with his breakfast, <laughs> and then he'll get back, you know, to celebrate the Super Bowl. But it's like, what is that keeps him going? And it's it's pure addiction and obsession, isn't it? Even more so than what players have. And even, like, it's funny, he referenced the Finding Mastery podcast with Steve Kerr, but Steve Kerr speaks a lot about like, the tangible goals for a coach. And like a tangible goal for a coach is, is so kind of satisfactory for him because it's various different mechanisms coming together as one. It's kind of like what we were speaking about on the other show about Joe Schmidt and these moves that come together. Like it's multiple, it's not just one aspect that you excel in. It's like a hundred different factors all lining up perfectly that you've orchestrated and it's manufacturing itself perfectly. Like the... The level of, I suppose, job satisfaction that you'd get out of that is massive. It's kind of funny, like the comparison between coaches and players. Like, I mean, you can see this from a lot of exponents, particularly in football. Like, not all players have as deep a level of understanding of the game. Like, it's something innate, like this, yeah. this talent. Whereas, coaching is something that you kind of foster, that you develop, and that it, it you like, you clearly have a degree of understanding that is probably exceeds them that you're kind of 
like players are trying to perform but coaches are trying to do their best to make them perform and therefore there's a lot more time and thinking that goes yeah. into that process in itself as well so yeah. I think it just it's not often that somebody is as willing as well as Ian is to kind of peel back the curtain and tell you about their own experiences of that and how you know that what it, motivates your own philosophy or what it motivates yourself and that's what makes it so interesting you know and, and I, th- I think my point like is like as you said started off with sometimes it is about i'm not good enough to make it what will i what you know how do i stay in the game and yeah. that's fine but but once you are doing that then it, it it's because you need to to do this thing in the game it's not even about wanting to be the player anymore it's not about you know yeah. and it's like sorry to switch sports again but like i often look at frank lampard and stephen jarrett and wonder what are they doing to going into these tankless, relatively low paid by the standards of the money that they've made in their career like jobs, boys, yeah. where they could just have jobs for life on BT and never ruffle any feathers or say a word, and they'd be legends at their clubs, and they'd never have to do a day's work again. And instead they go into these, you know, 80-hour weeks of tankless jobs to ultimately get what, like, you know, to, to, to win a league with Rangers and get linked with the Liverpool job. Yeah. You know, that's as high as it gets for Steven Gerrard, like, you know. But it's not. It's an obsession and addiction. It's very, very interesting, that yeah. the, the mindset that goes into a certain type of person that has to succeed at this in this job. Like I think Belichick is a prime example of that. Like, Belich- the, the, even his reaction to, like, if they score an amazing touchdown or Brady like, fires a 90-yard pass... As opposed to like when you watch his reaction to like when they flush golf out of the pocket or when a cornerback gets on the ball because little think, wins, yeah. He but also like I think secretly there's a bit more ego in something that you know you've incorporated. Like Brady's might might just be onto sheer ability like to, as a phenomenal player, whereas like these really kind of positive defensive flushes or like just the idea of slowly grounding down Jared Goff like that as the product, yeah. that's that's manufactured you know what I mean that doesn't happen in eight that doesn't happen without Belichick you're you're dead right look we've got miles off topic on what Ian <laughs> yeah. was saying and that's that's my fault but it's also because we just have our own uh, interest in these kind of things and I think Ian flushed out a lot of what we're like you know already thinking there but just to go back to him briefly it's an interest we, we talk a lot on the show and, and earlier in the week we obviously spoke to Max McFarland who's making a, a living um you know uh, playing for the Scotland Sevens, um, having obviously been born and raised in Ireland, and he's Irish. But um, we talked about um, Irish players, professional players, going to make a living elsewhere. And, you know, what we've also touched on, and Ian is the prime example of this, is that there is an Irish coaching tree that is spreading out throughout the world. And obviously, Raj being kind of like head, heading of that in, in, in New Zealand. But, like, it's kind of all around the place, really. And it's something that, like, I hope... In you know, not necessarily particularly for Ian. It's not like his career is his career. It doesn't necessarily have to benefit Irish rugby. It's sure. something that you always mention as well. But you know that this does kind of come around to the next time we need to, you know, the post Andy Farrell era. It's like you know these guys are out there learning their trade. They're all around the world. They're doing. They're picking up everything that needs to be picked up. They're you know they're world leaders. Yeah. You know, and it would just be nice if if if. You know, one of those people are are there to to lead Ireland's next generation. Especially you know? if they're, you know, it's not it's not a particularly, you know, you weren't forged by the Irish setup. Like you've got a broad range of yes. experience from abroad that you can bring back, and like that, all that does is it kind of burgeons out. You know, like slowly but surely, you take something from the Crusaders, or as you mentioned, like a rapid line defense. You bring that back, and you slowly incorporate that in. That's what I mean. That's what Schmidt did with Andy Farrell. Like you've got coaches like ideally. Greg Feet comes in and revolutionises, like, I don't use that word lightly, Irish scrummaging. Mm. And the next set after that is people like 
Mike Ross or John Fogarty who come in and have learned from that and carry that on, you know, like these Irish coaches who benefit from these outside influences. And if the Irish coach themselves are, you know, extracting that outside influence, all the better. Yeah, absolutely. Well, listen, I hope you enjoyed that. It was an extra show this week, um, something we haven't done for you um, so far, but, you know, we will from time to time. Um, a little bit of a coaching special with Ian Costello. And I hope, look, to be honest, Morris knows everything there is to know about rugby, despite his despite, <laughs> despite his uh, modest approach. I learned an awful lot from, from about coaching, about defensive systems, about rugby systems in general from Ian there. So I hope you did too, and I hope you enjoyed it. We'll be back with a our regular programming um, next Tuesday um, when we kind of like settle in in the in between week uh, of the of the Six Nations. The kind of the, like we know the players need a rest and like you know it's important that there's gap weeks but bloody hell it's the most annoying week of the year isn't it <laughs> yeah. the momentum is absolutely cut from under us of the the six nations but um look we'll be back then and as i said i hope you enjoyed um the uh the bonus show if you like world and union with uh with me mick mccarthy and with Mars bosnan feel free to uh tell your friends about us feel free to to let them know feel free to you know, download, share where you can on social media, and most importantly, as you will hear on all podcasts, please subscribe and like and comment and rate the podcast because that helps us an awful lot, as you may know. Anyway, we'll talk to you next week.